worship, Lord. And, uh, and, and Lord, fellowship is part uh, of our name. It's glory of God, Christian fellowship. And, and uh, perhaps we, we take that name lightly, but Lord, that word is saturated with meaning. Um, it's something beyond a mere partnership. Uh, but is it, it is a fellowship, Lord. So today as we dive into Philippians, we pray that you may place a burning coal upon my lips, Lord, that you may take these parched lips, Father, and preach the gospel, um, that you may use me as your conduit, as your, as your messenger, Lord, um, that nothing uh, in my own sinful self may, may interfere with uh, the glory of your word proclaimed as we learn today on fellowship and the role that it has within the church. So as I said, um, the specific passage today is Philippians 4, 1 through 9, and the sermon is called Stand Firm in Gospel Unity. But before we go into um, the actual passage, I want you um, up front to envision two different type of ships, okay? And you can, you can progress, you can progress to the slide with the two ships. Um, now I want you to picture two different type of ships, okay? The first ship is, is a Captain Ferdinand Hard's ship, okay? And, and Captain Ferdinand's ship, he has a basic rule. If there's any disagreement, you can do one of two things. You can either jump off the ship and just, you know, swim until you find some aisle, or you can duel each other. Okay? But that's with any disagreement that you have whatsoever. Now, you, you can only imagine, you know, how far that ship's going to get floating through the ocean. I mean, it's not going to get very far. Right? Could you imagine? I mean, you would have, by the end of it, you would have a, a ship with one person, probably be the captain. Now, on the other ship, you have a Captain um, Felipe Fellowship. And on Captain Felipe's Fellowship, like, you know, all ships in general, you have to work your problems out. I mean, you're stuck on this ship. I mean, it's illogical just to jump into the middle of the water knowing that there's no refuge in sight. So you're stuck with these people, and you're having to work with these people. It was, it was interesting. I was doing um, some research on the history of the Philippines. And I was reading about the, uh, the different pirates and, you know, the history with Spain. And it's very, very similar to the same type of history that South America had. Uh, but as, as many of you know, you know, when you're stuck on a ship, there's really nowhere you can go, right? And you can obviously see there's a tongue-in-cheek tongue in in cheek there, right? Hardship, right? Fellowship. Well, the latter of the two, fellowship, how do we work together when we're stuck on this, on this ship is what we're going to discuss today. And the basic question that we're going to ask ourselves in light of Philippians chapter 4 is how does a Christian stand firm in Christ and deal with issues of disunity and danger? The second question is, well, what do we mean when we say the word fellowship? After all, we are called uh, glory of God, Christian fellowship. I don't know if the word ship in fellowship is supposed to imply this type of imagery where you are stuck in some type of vehicle together and you're trying to get somewhere, and you all have to work together, and every single person plays a part, but, you know, it is kind of fitting. So ask yourself the question, which voyage do you want to partake on? And we're going to see that in Scripture there's a very clear answer on what type of ship, right, we're going to be traveling on. So to just give you guys some quick background on the, uh, the book of, uh, of Philippians, it was the first church of all of Europe that Paul had, had planted. And, you know, it was a, it's, it's, a, it's a church that's very close to his heart, right? He speaks very warmly of it. And throughout the letter, you know, if you've read it, you see that very endearing term. It's not like some of these other letters that when he's writing to these churches, you know, they're messing up all over the place and he's yelling at them over here, yelling at them over there. This letter, he's more, you know, he's, he's more content with, with what the church has done. And he has an issue that he wants to address, but he doesn't really 
He doesn't really open up with it. He saves it to the very end. Now, uh, Philippi itself was a place that was, uh, it was a Roman colony. So with being a Roman colony, it came with some privileges. And it had a pretty uh, wealthy population um, because of some mines that were nearby. And it also had a large uh, segment of, of soldiers, veterans. Like a lot of veterans would come and stay there um, after their tour. But the church in, in Philippi, um, they, were, they were rather poor. But one of the reasons you had this real close connection with Paul is that they gave. I mean, the, this was a church that gave to him. And he's actually writing this letter when he's in prison. And, you know, if you don't know, the way prisons worked in antiquities, and it, it's like this in a lot of third world countries, is the government doesn't provide you with food or, or anything. I mean, your family and your friends have to bring shelter to you. So he's writing this letter in regards to an individual who we'll learn about later who the church has sent with provisions. And this gentleman gets really sick and he almost dies. And now Paul sends him back with this letter in hand to be read at the church. And the overall purpose of the letter, uh, a lot of times people read it and they think it's, um, it's like rejoicing because there's a lot of usage of the word like rejoice, you know, happiness, that type of, uh, uh, that type of image. Uh, other people think it's about like joy and worry because of the frequency of the words. Um, but one thing we do know is that the, word, that the letter is really Christocentric. I mean, there's little over 100 verses, and Jesus is called in a multitude of different names over 50 times, right? You'll find uh, the preposition, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, sown all throughout the letter, because he's going to make a point, as we're going to see with the Gospels. But what I think the book is about is the book is about unity. Now, you can immediately see this. I mean, whenever you're reading a book of the Bible, don't gloss over genealogies don't gloss over introductions because a lot of times these, even these introductions are theologically saturated. So in this one in particular, the very first two verses of the book open up with um, Paul speaking about him and his like fellow slave Timothy. Right? Timothy was kind of like his apprentice, right? But he puts himself on an equal playing field, calling <clears throat> themselves servants, right? And he addresses this letter to um, the overseers. In the Greek, it's the word bishop, and the New Testament uses the word bishop, elder, and shepherd, pastor, interchangeably. So he writes this to <clears throat> the elders, shepherds, you know, uh, bishops, to the deacons, and to the rest of the church. And he puts them all on this same playing field to try to convey this point of unity and equality. So um, we see in uh, verse number five in the first chapter, the theme of partnership quickly rise. I mean, in the fifth verse... Uh, it already says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's going to front load the discussion to be about partnering in what? In the gospel. The euangelion. Partnering, which is where we get the word fellowship from, to partner in the gospel. And this theme is going to run all throughout. But the clearest place, and this is one of those places where you'll, you'd, you'd want to mark your Bible, because this is really the thesis statement, the purpose statement of the book of Philippians, is verse 27 in the first chapter. And verse 27 in the first, cha first chapter reads as follows. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, remember that this is a, a I mean, this is a, like, a, like a military place. This is kind of like um, the Fayetteville, right, of, of uh, Macedonia. 
And when he's using words like stand firm, they're immediately thinking of this, uh, these military type images, right? Of soldiers standing firm together. But even this term here, live your life, the direct translation kind of goes like practice your citizenship, right? Practice your citizenship in this way. Stand firm in this way. And what are you standing firm in? And what is the citizenship that you're practicing? Is this gospel life, right? You know, he's telling them that they are to live their citizenship in such a way, right, to bring glory to the gospel. So the rest of the, um, of, of the book is going to carry this theme, right? One of the main ways it carries this theme is through talking of humility, right? But what we can see here is we can see here uh, someone who, uh, I believe they recently achieved citizenship, correct? Uh, how many people in here have actually achieved citizenship, U.S. citizenship? I mean, I would, yeah, I would think it's a large proportion. Right? I remember when my dad achieved citizenship, it was a huge deal, okay? All he could talk about was wanting to vote, wanting to vote, wanting to vote. He could not wait to get in line and vote. Because with citizenship comes what? With citizenship comes what? Privileges. And what else? Privileges and Responsibilities, exactly. What are some of these awesome responsibilities that we could do? Pay taxes, right? But but what are some what are, what are some of the of the benefits? I mean, you're protected by the Constitution. If you were in a foreign country and anything happened, you know, you'd be able to walk into an embassy. The government is literally saying you have the ability to choose your elected leaders, and you have all these various protections. And Paul is going to introduce this theme of citizenship. Not because he's going to want to ask them to be good citizens of, of, of Philippi, but because he's going to want them to meditate on what does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? So you can see that in, in, in verse 27 when it says, live your life, he's saying, conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the rest of the letter is going to treat this theme. So we can continue. Um... In addition to, to citizenship, I want you to kind of think of the image or the illustration of like, of like an embassy or a colony, right? Who resides in the embassy? The ambassador. And what is the ambassador's role? He is a literal representative, a literal representative of his host nation. So where he goes, he represents America, right? Even on the embassy, the location of the embassy is America. I mean, literally, it's like... America deposited all over the world, and that's the case with any embassy. So if something bad were to happen in the nation, you'd be able to you know, go off to the embassy and find protection. So the New Testament implies that everybody who's part of this citizenship, everyone who is a citizen is also an ambassador. And not only are you amb an ambassador, but the church is also a colony. Do you know what a colony is? Philippi was a colony of the Roman Empire. And it, listen, it was a big deal to be a Roman citizen a big deal, okay? It came with a host of privileges. That's why, you know, Paul didn't, uh, you know, he didn't experience, um, you know, these immediate executions because he was able to say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, right? I got rights. I mean, I don't even think you could, uh, you could crucify a Roman citizen. So in addition, it's a colony. The church is a colony, and there's a difference between being a colony and being like a cruise ship, right? The church is not a cruise ship. It, it's not just a bunch of people sailing together to the destination of heaven, we're going to our vacation spot. No, no, no. It's a colony. And what a colony does is a colony is deposited in the land, right? A group of people are deposited in the land to try to extend the influence of the host nation. So the churches are both this colony and they're also 
um, these ambassadors. So if I were to give you in one sentence, one sentence uh, the central truth of the text here that we're going to study, um, it's that Paul wrote Philippians 4, 1 through 9 in order to exhort the church leaders and its members on standing firm in Christ for the sake of the gospel through being, and these will be our three main points, through being unified, through being joyful, and through being holy. So if we could just stop right there to give you guys the big picture, and we're able to do this because it's such a, it's such a short letter, but to give you the big picture, the first chapter, besides that introduction, uh, is, is introducing this theme of citizenship, of a gospel witness, right, of being these representatives. And then we move into the second chapter, and in the second chapter, what we see is um, we see Paul begin this argument, right, of, okay, so this is what a citizen looks like. And he's literally going to say, I'm going to provide you with four models of what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Who do you think is the first person he appeals to? If you were to guess. It's, it's, it's always the right answer in Sunday school, right? Yeah, he appeals to Jesus, right? So he says, well, one, Jesus is a model of citizenship. He's a model of humility, right? And there's a very important hymn that we'll return to, a beautiful hymn that we'll return to at the very end of the sermon to show what this citizen looks like. The second person <clears throat> that he appeals to, right, is, um, is Timothy, right? He says, look, remember Timothy? He's my fellow co-laborer, right? We work together, you know, we're, we're on par. Look at all that he's done alongside of me. Right? He uses words like, uh, he literally says, Timothy, Timothy and I are one-souled. Right? It's the idea here, one-souled, one in thought, right? standing firm together. And then he also mentions uh, the gentleman who had, uh, who had been sent by the church, whose name was Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus was the gentleman sent by the church of Philippi to basically you know, provide him with rations and, and money, you know, maybe a blanket. right? Uh, and he, when he went to go visit... Um, Paul, he almost died. So when he's writing this letter back, Paul's like, look, you see that? This is what it looks like to be a citizen. It looks like Timothy marching alongside of me, being one in mind, one soul, one in purpose, one in attitude, and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus who is willing to give his life right, to see that I was taken care of. And then he goes to a fourth individual, and the fourth individual is then chapter 3, which is Paul himself, right? Paul says, man, I was, I was like the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I did everything the law required. I was the cream of the crop. And then I became a Christian, and all of that was equivalent, uh, and, and I'll put the, the term mildly, it was equivalent to manure, to feces, right? All of that, you know, trying to achieve righteousness through the law was equivalent to, to feces. And then he has this deep theological passage in chapter 3 where he talks about, um, he talks about, uh, righteousness through, uh, through faith in Christ alone, right? Um, so with that broad overview, we get to the very end of chapter 3. And before we move on to chapter 4, tucked in at the very end of chapter 3 is again reminding us of this theme of, of citizenship. In verse, in verse 20 in chapter 3, he talks about our citizenship being in heaven. So when we finally arrive to chapter 4, the first word in chapter 4, that so then, what that so then is doing is it's pointing, in the Greek it's pointing backwards and it's pointing forward. 
It's a, it's, a transitional, um, it's a transitional word to try to attach these two thoughts together. So in other words, Paul has spent these first three chapters emphasizing you know, citizenship, emphasizing these models of what they look like, and now he's finally going to get to the point to basically say, and this is exactly why I'm telling you all this stuff. This is why. And he's going to get very detailed in a specific uh, situation that was happening in their church in which they need to apply this type of citizenship. So if I were to read this first verse, and this is responding uh, to the question, how does a Christian stand firm in Christ and deal with issues of disunity and danger? The first verse of chapter 4 reads as follows. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and my crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So he goes now, and he's kind of like sowing chapter 1, verse 27, with verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean, there's, there's a direct parallel. Remember that stand firm at the beginning? Right? Well, now here you got another stand, fir stand firm. And then at the end of chapter 30, you had citizenship. And then in, in chapter 1, verse 27, you had citizenship. So he's kind of like you know, using a, a rhetorical device here to sew these two pieces together. So basically, you're doing something called an inclusio. You're making a big loop. And you're saying, okay, now we get, now we get to talk about why, why are we talking about all this citizenship. Now, there's two things that we'll want to point out in this verse, all right? The first one is the word crown, okay? You can read that, and you can stay on that one. You, when you read my joy and my crown, I mean, think about what, what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that this church, this is his, the church that he brags about, okay? This is his joy, and he uses the word crown. Now, it's, in, in the Greek, it's not the word uh, for like a royal crown, which is where we get the word uh, Stephen from, the name Stephen. But it's, it's uh, the word for, like, a wreath. You guys know what a wreath is? Beyond the one that you put on your door, do you remember, like, during the Olympics, they give them the gold medal, and then they give them this, this wreath. And what does the wreath symbolize? Well, the wreath symbolizes right, the, the greatest accomplishment of an athlete. And there's a difference between him saying, yeah, you guys are my royalty, right, and him saying, you guys are my wreath. Like, you guys are the fruit of my labor. I mean, you guys, do you guys remember when he won all those gold medals and then they would show like his eating habits or what his workout routine was like? I mean, that was hard. It took him a lot of work. And as any, anyone in here who is ever an athlete knows, this is something that, you know, it's like a roller coaster. You have setbacks, you sprain your ankle, you pull a ligament, you have to train, you have to try to get back. I mean, so it's work. So even when we, when, before we even talk about unity and citizenship, he's already trying to tell us, trying to shake us and say, look, you guys are my crown. You guys are my work. And then next, the next image he uses is that of, um, of standing firm. Okay? Now, uh, I think standing firm is a little bit of a weak translation because remember, picture that you, you guys are a bunch of soldiers. Right? There's a lot of soldiers in this place. And when they're saying standing firm, what are you picturing? Has anyone in here ever served in the military? Right? Okay. Well, you know when you watch, uh, when you watch movies, you guys see how they're all jogging together? Right? Like, that makes absolutely no sense on the battlefield, right? Like, like you're not going to be getting together with your buddies and go jog, jogging around so some mortar shell can come and increase the casualty rate, right? Well, wh why do they do that? I mean, like every soldier I've ever talked to, you know, they'll talk about the cramped quarters, or you can even think on that ship, right? The cramped quarters, right? How close you have to live. I mean, there's, literal, there's literally no privacy in the military. 
And all this stuff that you do is to basically has one end goal. And the end goal is to begin to dissolve you of your individuality and make you identify yourself with the unit. You know, that's why when you talk to a soldier, especially like uh, the ones in World War II, if they talk about 1st Cavalry, the 1st Cavalry Division, it's not, oh yeah, yes, Leonard was a, was a private in the 1st Cavalry. No, it is the 1st first, the first Cavalry, right? The 1st Cavalry Division. They, they identify with the unit or the brigade or the squad because that's the type of mentality that they have to adapt in order to save their lives. So another image, if you can skip to the next one, when, I, when I'm saying uh, standing, standing firm, Right? He's, he's telling the church that they have to stand in lockstep. Okay, lockstep is literally, like, you can, you can kind of see this here with uh, some Roman centurions. Um, uh, you, you see their feet? See how even their feet are, are parallel in their motion? And how every shield is just perfectly spaced and balanced? The idea here is that they have to stand firm together. Because if one individual were to part, right? That spear that would go through, it would not only endanger him, but it would endanger the person behind him. It would give the enemy you know, an opening to, to dismantle this, um, this, this, this cohesion. So he's saying that, one, right, this idea of you're in a race. Okay, not only a race, because when you think of race, you think of one person. You're in a marathon, right, where you're, you can't finish the race without every other person changing the baton. And then also that he's asking them before he goes into the specific issue that they have to stand firm. And this is the type of image, that they have to stand in lockstep. And as they progress forward right, in this race, that they have to take their steps together and they have to be side by side and they have to be in this cohesive unit. So with those ideas influencing you as we continue on the next couple of verses, we get into the issue at hand. right? And this is where we get to verse 2 to 3. And I'll read verse 2 to 3 as follows. In chapter 4 of Philippians. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. <clears throat> now, usually when, when Paul names people by name, is bad, right? Like, you got to really get on his naughty list for, for him to name you by name in a letter. But this is an exception, right, along with uh, uh, one Simeon. Um, here he's saying is that these are two women who, who have labored alongside of him. The same type of terminology he used when he talked about Epaphroditus, the same type of terminology he used when he talked about uh, Timothy. These are women who have, you know, who have sweated beside him, and they have some type of personal disagreement, right? And by the way, can you imagine like if you had a personal, degree, a personal disagreement in church, right? And your names were put in a letter to be read by billions of Christians for the rest of all time, right? Oh, man, right? That's a, that, that's a scary one, right? Um, but, but, I mean, this is to their legacy um, because we get this inscripturated uh, into this narrative that teaches us about, about fellowship. So, I mean, he names names, right? And even when he names names, he's doing it with, with a sense of equality, you know, the, the, he uses the verb for both. I urge you and I urge you. And then he moves to a softer term when he talks about um, this next person, uh, um, the yoke fellow, okay? Uh, where he says true partner, right? So if you can go to the next one and the one after that. Okay, so here he says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women. So they have a personal conflict. 
And, and Paul goes and says to this person, if it's a person, he says, yeah, and, and I need you to fix this, right? Remember that same type of imagery, you know, moving in lockstep, that equality. Some people interpret the word there as an actual name of a person. Other people interpret it as, um, as speaking about one person in particular. But I think given the introduction of the book and how he's addressing the entire church, he's addressing the congregation and its leaders, I think that that word there is he's talking to everyone. He's telling everyone, especially given this idea of standing firm, of moving forward together, that he's telling all of them right, to partner together. And, and remember early on we saw that that word partner is the word where we get fellowship from. So the literal translation of true partner is yoke fellow. And has anyone here ever worked on a farm? You, you, re you really only see this, I think, uh, I don't know if you see this here in America. I mean, you, you see this in third world countries where they yoke the two animals together. I mean, that, that's what we have. You, you see that thing on, on their necks there? They're yoke fellows, right? They're yoked together. And that black bison or cow or, or whatever he is, right, bull, because he can't be a cow because he has these horns, that, that bull cannot go anywhere without the other one, right? And, and what happens if they decide that they don't want to walk in the same direction anymore, right? Well, then you get Captain, you know, Hard's boat vessel, right? You get hardship, right? So that is the idea that's being conveyed here. He's telling the church, he's saying, look, you guys, you guys are not like individually plowing the field. And, and, and Paul's like, okay, can you go, can you go and you help? And can you go and can you, no, no, you guys are literally, the church is literally yoked together and has to plow this field, right, in partnership, in fellowship. So then we move on to verse 4 through 7. In verse 4 through 7, the idea, oh, the, the idea earlier on, the main point for verses 2 to 3, was to be united for the gospel. For the gospel's sake, be yoked together, be, be fellow, you know, uh, be yoked fellows, be fellow partners, you know, standing firm, marching on together. Be united for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of the gospel. And now in these verses, 4 through 7, the point that he's trying to convey, he's going from the particular situation of those two ladies to very general exhortation. And the word exhortation basically means like um, moral teaching, right? It's like, like what I'm doing right now, this is exhorting. When you're, when you're teaching on the basis of scripture um, uh, truths that are supposed to provoke you into action. So now he's going to move into very general exhortations. And the main point here is to be joyful in the gospel. To be joyful in the gospel. So we have this scenario where we're supposed to be partnered together. We're supposed to be yoke fellows. And then this is what we find in the next couple of verses, if you want to read with me, in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice, exclamation mark. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, let's recall for a second. There's three things that we get out of this passage. Three main things. And the first thing is rejoice, exclamation mark. Whenever you have anything repeated in scripture, you know, they didn't have exclamation marks in Greek. So, you would use repetition to try to make the point. And the first thing he says here is rejoice. 
So you have this uh, conflict in the church, and what's your response supposed to be? Rejoice. Well, what do you mean rejoice? Well, first of all, who's writing this? Paul. And do you guys remember where Paul's writing this from? He's writing this from prison. This is not, okay, this is not an American prisons where you have you know, TV and you get to go out to the yard and work out, right? Uh, you get, I, I read a really funny story, like the number one book that was checked out uh, in Guantanamo Bay was Harry Potter, right? You got no Harry Potters in a prison in antiquities, okay? You got nothing. That's why uh, in another letter, Paul writes in gratitude to this church who gave him a blanket, okay? Because he was freezing to death. Well, here's Paul, and Paul is writing, and this man who had it all is saying rejoice. And earlier on, I mean, we can't look at these, these verses in, uh, in specific, but just to read you uh, the type of rejoicing that Paul himself does earlier on, I'm going to read from, um, from, uh, from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. And then he also says in verse 8 of chapter 3, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them feces so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This very personal in a relationship that he has with Jesus is worth more than anything. And because of that relationship, he can rejoice. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever found in Christianity is you know, there's a difference between being happy, the American dream, and, and having true joy. Being able to be stuck in a torture chamber or living in a third world country and having joy and being able to rejoice. There's literally no scenario right, that you are not immune to to be able to rejoice because you have that same type of personal relationship, that same type of personal connection that Paul had. And it's just an infinite number of rejoicing. So after he tells us rejoice exclamation mark, we get to this next part where he uses, uh, the word, um, uh, he uses the word graciousness. He says in verse 5, Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So we see two things in here. One, this is already a, a very gracious church, right? I mean, these are the people that have been funding him, and they haven't stopped. And they don't even have much to begin with, right? That's, that's another thing that's really interesting you'll find in third world countries, is that third world believers, Christian believers, give a way higher percentage of their income um, you know, to, to charity and the work of the church than people in first world countries, right? Um, but he's telling them, look, continue to be, continue to have this characteristic of graciousness. And, and the term graciousness in here, it's, the, it's, it's one of the only places where we find it used in the New Testament in, in this form, and it's literally saying, live life for other people, right? Live life for others, um, you know, don't, don't shy away from giving. Be a vehicle of gratitude. And I think one of, the way, one of the reasons he says this is because, I mean, this really is one of the best ways to deal with conflict, is to forget about yourself, right, and give, and give, and give. I mean, that, that was, I mean, I look at Jesus, right, and what did Jesus do? He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave, he gave, he gave. And then here we read story after story after story of people giving, people giving, and people giving. So one of the ways you deal with conflict is to give. And to look at other people as being more important than yourself. Now, in addition to that, he gives a third exhortation here. And the third exhortation, another exclamation mark, is pray. And he says in verse 6, Don't worry about anything, but in, anything, in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what's interesting about this verse 
Well, he uses four different words for prayer. That's the thing that drove me crazy about Greek when I was studying, is that you have like a million words for everything. And each word is very specific, and it's trying to convey something very, very specific. So when you see something like this, and you got four different words here for prayer, for pray, again, repetition. What's, what's Paul trying to do? Pay attention to this. All right? Pay attention. And, and let's look at these words, right? First of all, he's saying don't worry about anything. No, he doesn't say don't worry about the small things. Don't sweat the small stuff, right? Um, no, he's saying don't worry about anything. Again, because it's attached to that first thing, rejoice. It's also attached to the second thing, gracious people, like people who, people who only need Jesus to rejoice. They don't need things. So they can take their things and use that for gospel ministry, for the sake of the gospel, right? Because they can rejoice with nothing. And then that leads to this third one, and he says, okay, look, maybe, because this is the truth, maybe some of you are, are babes in Christ, right? Well, if you are, don't worry, you don't, and you see this repeated all throughout the New Testament, don't worry, you don't have to do this on your own. God gives us the spirit, but he also gives us a direct, you know, line of discussion to talk to him. So, so a lot, I, I saw this uh, question the other day about, well, how do I, how do I approach God? Right? Actually, it was, in, it was in this little comic. How, do you, how are you supposed to approach God? And, and, and the response is the same exact way that my daughter approaches me when I go to pick her up from daycare every day. And you know how she approaches me? With the most excited face that you can imagine. And she starts doing this thing, and she starts like scooching forward and bumping into things, like anything to get to me. And then when I pick her up, she, she does this thing. She, and this is the only time she does it, is I'll pick her up, and then she starts going like this, right, and just feeling my face. Right, like to say, ah, oh, my dad. This is my dad, you know. I know what he looks like. This is him. He's really here. The same way we're given this channel, and this is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Gospels. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, our Abba, our Daddy. We have this direct line of communication, and they say, listen, if you pray, if you pray, God will make himself known to you. And he uses these four words. The first one is through prayer. Prayer is kind of making um, this, this conversational intercession, having this conversation with God. And then he uses petition. Like, you know, when people are writing petitions, you're asking about very specific things, right? And then he uses thanksgiving. And what's the holiday thanksgiving about? It's about being grateful. So pray with, uh, you know, pray with a, in, a, in a conversing tone. Uh, pray and, actual, and actually ask for things. And then pray with gratitude, right, for all that you have. And then let your requests be made known. You're requesting. God has given you promises in the New Testament, right? I mean, we're seeing promises in here. So don't be afraid to request what God has promised you, right? And that's specifically in here regarding worrying or any of those other things. God's promising you that, that he will make himself known to you through prayer. So we see three things in here to summarize uh, this text. We see, and there's exclamation marks at the end of all of these, we see rejoice. We see give, and we see pray. And what's the result of this living of the Christian life? It's peace, right? This beautiful word, peace, which for, for, um, for the Hebrews, the word shalom there, it's not, it doesn't just mean the absence of like, violence or trouble. Like the American context, when we say peace, we mean the absence of war. But in Hebrew, the word peace, shalom, is all-encompassing. It's, it's the Garden of Eden before the fall. He wants to give us the real life. 
know, the, the reason why we were created to live. So let's move on to, um, to the next verses, four through se- um, eight through nine. And eight through nine reads as follows. Finally, brothers, whatever, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So we see here another pattern, right? And, and, and I mean, what's, what's the pattern that we got here? It's this word whatever, right? Now, whoever translated this could have taken all the whatevers out, right? But I don't know, that's not what Paul wants to do. Paul uses the word for whatever again and again and again so that you can get this nice parallel list. And if you know uh, about your Greco-Roman culture or history, you know that a lot of these words are, are virtues for, for the Greeks and for the Romans. Okay, virtues as opposed to vices. You know, these are the things that Roman society looked favorable on. In other words, Roman society and in Roman political uh, philosophy believed that there was a certain number of traits that made you a good Roman citizen. So Paul goes in here and Paul lists these virtues, honor, Justice, purity, you know, uh, loveliness, beautifulness, um, and and you would be mistaken if you read this and you think, oh, okay. So what? What also he's trying to tell them is he's trying to tell them to be good, you know, Philippian Roman citizens, right? And that is not what he's doing at all. Okay, there's a danger in elevating your culture or your or your nationality, right? Your nation state above your true citizenship. Remember that theme, citizenship, he's hammering all throughout because the, citizen, the citizenship of the kingdom of God, and that's what Jesus preaches when he's here on earth. He preaches the kingdom of God, right? the kingdom of heaven that we get to partake in. That is superior in every way to whatever kingdom that we have here. And these kingdoms, they all have a role. Romans 13 says that they're servants to God. It's the same word for deacon. Uh, Romans 13, Paul uses to describe government. But he's, he wants them to know these Gentiles that, that these things, right, these things, these, these cultural norms, uh, uh, these civic virtues are only valuable in comparison to what? In comparison to whatever is commendable, right, whatever is uh, morally excellent and praiseworthy. And what's morally excellent and praiseworthy? Well, that what Jesus revealed. Humility, right, the stuff that we saw earlier. Contentment, you know, being people of rejoicing. Right? Being people of fellowship, of partnership. So you can, you can scour either Filipino culture or American culture, and the things that you find that are prized in the society, you have a standard to compare them to, and the standard that you compare them to is the gospel. Right? So our first point here is that Paul asked them to dwell on these things to dwell on them, to meditate on them, to, you know, to get things in the right order, right? And then his next point is to do these things. He, and, and here is the big return. He doesn't want you to feel, like, feel joy or, or feel graciousness or, you know, um, you know, feeling any of these virtues. No, no, he wants you to dwell on them and then act on them. So he says, 
Do what you have learned, in verse number 9, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen. Again, here's that repetition. Learned, received, heard, and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is like patting himself on the, on the shoulder because he thinks he's incredible. No, no, no. He's speaking to this young church and saying, look, the example of Jesus, the example of Timothy, the example of me, the things that you see that are praiseworthy, right, trustworthy, those things I want you to emulate. I want you to copy. I want you, remember when he talks about Timothy and when he talks about the two women at the church, that they served alongside him, that they sweated alongside him, and that they marched in lockstep. He's asking you the things that you received, heard, and seen, and learned, right? Like what is being projected right now, this teaching, what you're learning, he wants you to do it. Because the gospel isn't a passive cruise ship to heaven. No, it's a citizenship in a colony as ambassadors for Christ himself. So God calls us to be united. We saw that in that first partition when he spoke very directly about marching together, when he spoke about uh, you know, uh, resolving the conflict of these two women. And then he also wants us to be joyful. We saw that in that second partition where he's talking about you know, being graciousness, uh, to be gracious people, etc. And then he uh, calls us to be holy. In other words, all those virtues, all that action, that's what being holy is all about. You know? That's one of the reasons you don't want to sin is because you sinning or the church being in disunity or the church being in conflict doesn't make you look bad. Who cares what you look like? I mean, if you're honestly, if you're a real Christian, you don't care what you look like, right? That doesn't mean that you could, you know, you could, you could not shave or anything like that, okay, or stop, you know, stop wearing cologne or anything like that. No, it means like you literally have something that you have deposited your joy in that is way more meaningful. And what is the thing that you're supposed to have value on? Well, you know, if you're paying attention to the points, it is uh, be united, be joyful, and be holy for the sake of the gospel. Not for your sake. Because, you know what? You're not going to be saved or condemned on the basis of, of your personal holiness. I mean, we, Paul already treated that and said that all that was like you know, manure compared to what he has been attributed to by Christ. Christ gave us his righteousness. So it, it's not like you're going to be judged on, on how good of a Christian you are, how good of a citizen you are. No. That's not the case that he's making here. The cases that he's making here is the reason why is for the sake of the gospel, so that other people can get to that same position where they can experience this joy and this meaning and what it, and what it means to really be a human being. So we're going to close today by looking at an example, one of my favorite examples of, of a model, right? And, and this is a, a passage I had to memorize and if you know me, I, can, I cannot memorize any songs, all right? I cannot memorize any songs. Like, seriously, if, if I had to sing a song that wasn't like Happy Birthday right now, I would not be able to do it. Kitty knows, and that's, the funny thing is, I sing all the time. I just make, honestly, every day I sing songs that I just make up, especially to Lottie. But, but this verse, this hymn, um, I memorize, and perhaps one of the reasons I memorize is because um, it rhymes, so Kitty and I, when we would memorize scripture, we would put it into songs. Usually we would put it into raps. We would, you know, if we confess the sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us the sins and to cleanse us 
She's embarrassed. Uh, but we would, we, would, we would put these things into rhymes because it would help us to remember. Well, this one, my Greek professor, uh, he translated the, the ISV version. And in the ISV version, he wanted to convey that this is a hymn. That, and you see it in the Greek. If you look at it in the Greek, you see that the Greek has all this rhyming structure, and it's, and it's very clearly like a poem. I mean, it's something that's meant to be spoken out loud, memorized, right, um, or even sung. So we're going to close in just focusing. I mean, maybe you, you want to just close your eyes and just listen, right? Or you can read with me if you can read that small text. But, but this is the model that he deposits, that Paul deposits in the middle of the book when he's talking about Jesus as an example of humility, when he's talking about Jesus as an example of what this citizenship looks like, this is the hymn, the only hymn in the letter that he puts right at the middle as a giant flag so you get a clear depiction. And it rhymes. Isn't that nice? So here's from the ISV translation, and it reads as follows. And this is from um, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I'm, I'm going to read uh, the first verse. Verse 5 is the setup. And then after... Verse 5 goes uh, the hymn. So he says, Have the same attitude among yourselves that was also in the Messiah Jesus. This is the attitude that when you walk out of here, you have one thing that you can say, this is what a citizen of heaven looks like. Right? <clears throat> in God's own form existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness, a servant's form did he possess, a mortal man becoming. In human form he chose to be, and lived in all humility, death on a cross, obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of everyone should fall wherever they're residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus Christ is Lord, while God the Father prays him. So when you think here of Jesus, Jesus is, you know, where we're given wreaths, Jesus in Revelation is given a crown. Right? He is the literal king of the universe. Creation was made through him. He can actually say that he's at the center of the universe. And what does the, 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 the man who's at the center of the universe do when he comes right, into humanity in the form of being born in a manger, in an animal pen. Right? He goes and he dies for the very creation that rebelled against him. This is your model of what a citizen in the kingdom of heaven looks like. So if Jesus, the rightful ruler of the universe, comes and dies on behalf of the people, well, then you can only imagine what it looks like for you as a member of his flock to live your life in a continual death. You are an ambassador of Christ. And you're supposed to, people are supposed to see you in the church and see that. And I know what you're saying. I can't do that because nobody can. But that's why in our passage, God provides you with the peace of God. He provides you with the God of peace. He provides you with his spirit so that you can do all of this, so that you can be a citizen of heaven. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, you are the triune God. You are the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and within you for all of eternity and all of existence has been unity, triune, the triunited one. There is no division but perfect 
harmony, perfect fellowship, perfect partnership, perfect love. And you call us the church who you've made in your image. You made us male and female. You call us the church to be your bride and to be your ambassadors and to be your colony, to rejoice with you, to give thanksgiving in our prayer, and to be people of gratitude and graciousness. It's a task that is beyond us, but thanks be to God that our righteousness is not reliant on our performance, but our performance is the product of our gratitude for what you have done on the cross. Father, you empower us, and you have taught us, and you've even provided the word of God, scripture, to help guide us. You provided examples in church history, Lord. I mean, the people who were a mere 20 years away from Jesus' crucifixion had the same exact type of problems that we have in every church for the past 2,000 years. But Lord, you provide us with Christ, the one who was equal with God, but came to earth to die on a bloody, stinking cross so that we may be looked upon by you as righteous. Lord, may we be people of joy and proclaim to the world, for the sake of the gospel, what entails this citizenship. In your name we give you all the thanks and the honor. Amen. Now, before everyone leaves, we 